Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, this morning we're wrapping up our series on temptation uh, that we began at the beginning of the summer. And uh, so far as we've been going through this series, we've been using John Owen's definition, a, a kind of rewrite of it, just as uh, to give us a kind of framework to speak from. He defined temptation as this, anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the minds and hearts of a person away from obedience to God towards sin in any degree. Now, as we complete this series and as we start to land this plane, one of the realizations that we have is the power of temptation uh, in the life of others. And we know that sometimes it can feel as though temptation has a strong hold that's almost unbreakable in your life and in the way that you live. Uh, You know, when we sing about our hearts and we think about the scriptures and the way they say that they are prone to wonder. Uh, Some of us wonder if our hearts aren't just prone to wonder, but wonder is like all they can do. And so this morning as we complete this series, what we wanted to do is we really wanted to end by punctuating the supremacy of Christ in all things, including our daily fight with temptation. And I can't think of a better book to do this with than Hebrews. This book of Hebrews that we are looking at actually looks like a sermon that would have probably taken about 45 minutes to deliver. Now, you'll remember that the book of Hebrews revels in the unrivaled supremacy of Christ, who is presented as being greater, greater than the prophets of the Old Testament. He is greater than angels, than David, than Aaron, than the whole priesthood. And it looks like here he is preaching to a church where some Jews are being tempted to turn back from Christ to their old Jewish practices. And and this pastor is trying to preach to them and encourage them that don't turn back and away from Christ. That's why this pastor, I believe, spends so much time highlighting the unique status of Jesus as our great high priest. So much of Hebrews is focused on this issue. He wants them to know that only Jesus is really able to bring them to God. Now, as we think about this this morning, our verses today actually act like a kind of door hinge. They're going to close one section and begin another. Uh, It's going to close a section that began in Hebrews 3.1, and then it's going to open us up into a section that's going to go all the way into Hebrews chapter 10. And what we're going to see this morning is that Hebrews 3 has picked up on Psalm 95, and it's reminding the church of Jews who have been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, but who died in the desert and failed to enter the rest of God in the promised land. See, Israel who died in the desert, in the wilderness, that Israel who gave in to temptation. He says, those people are a kind of type for Christians today. And I want you to understand, they have a lesson for Christians today. And for this, the Hebrew says, the Christians need to hear the warning. Christians live in the already not yet of the rest of God. 
We too are awaiting a greater rest that is to come. And as we await that time, we are in a wilderness waiting for Jesus Christ to return or for us to die and to be with him. And until then, we need to be faithful. So by faith, Hebrews 4.3 says that we have already in one sense entered into the rest of God as we celebrate our new identity and inheritance in Christ. But Hebrews warns that it would be worse for us than those Israelites who died in the desert for giving into temptation and not obeying God until we die or Jesus comes back. In other words, obedience for Christians matters. Grace is real and obedience is called for. Now that's a strong warning, right? Like you remember those guys that died in the desert? Like that's a warning for you. Now the verses right before our text get even stronger. You think that's strong, look at your life, it needs to be obedient, but notice that in the verse that immediately preceded it, it speaks of the word of God coming in like a two-edged sword that's able to pierce to the very heart of a person. It's a kind of judgment language where God's word is coming in and looking at your hearts and exposing your thoughts and judging whether or not they are pleasing before the gaze of God. And he says, there is nothing hidden from the gaze of God. And when his word goes forth, it searches and knows and reveals the hearts of men and women. See, we are all naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account in verse 13. Now, you think about that. And that is, a, that is a daunting verse that brings a lot of a sense of accountability before God. Now, as you read that, I want you to think about that for just a hot second. Because it's one thing to have someone expose your actual sins that would be enough to terrorize most of us. But imagine that someone saw not only the sins that you commit outwardly, but also the sins of your thought life and your desires. You haven't committed adultery, but God sees you lust after other men or women. You haven't murdered, but you are jealous because things seem to work out better for others than you. You haven't stolen, but you covet your neighbor's car. Now, how confident would you feel in a scenario where, where God can see your very heart? Well, catch what? That's not a scenario. That's the reality that we live in. See, This evokes the imagery of judgment by a righteous judge for the guilty. And if you think, well, maybe those sins don't sound like me, Romans 14.23 always catches us all. It says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So how do you get from God's all-seeing gaze in verse 13 to approaching his throne boldly in verse 16? Do you feel the pressure of that? I'm standing before his all-seeing gaze as a sinner, And then I'm called in verse 16, just three verses later, to come boldly into the presence of God. How can we do that? I think many of us feel that kind of fear every time we think about approaching God. How can a sinner like me, with the temptations and sins that I struggle with, not even the things just that people see, but the things that people don't see in my heart of hearts, how can a sinner like me come before a holy and righteous God? Well, that's exactly what we want to look at this morning. See, our big idea is this. Because Jesus is your great high priest, pray confidently and consistently for help to fight temptation and sin. Because Jesus is your great high priest, I want to encourage you to pray confidently and consistently in your help for fight against temptation and sin. But as we do this, will you just pray with me as we begin? Let's pray to the Lord for help. 
Father, this morning as we come before you, we are praying. We are praying that you would come and help us, that your spirit would give us eyes to see. Father, we know that you see us, that your gaze is upon us even now, that you see more of us than we even can see of ourselves. And so, Father, this morning what we are asking is that you would help us to see you, that you would help us to see you as you are in your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your word. Lord, bless us with that, we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see this morning is this. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. So how do we get from the gaze of God upon sinners to any kind of confidence before him? Now, as we're wrestling with sinful desires that tempt us to turn from God, how is it that we can gain any kind of hope? Well, this pastor, speaking to his church, says that it really has to do with how you view Jesus. And this is what he says in the first part of verse 14. First part of verse 14, he says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now let's just stop right there. This pastor's spidey senses, I believe, have kicked in after warning of this all-seeing gaze of God looking on Christians who lay completely exposed before God. That sounds like a a grim situation for sinners before a holy God, and it is, and it would be, except for this, Jesus. See, this pastor reminds them that Jesus is their great high priest. He says, I want you to lock onto that, and I don't want you to lose your attention for a while, because you might have forgotten exactly what that means for you. He is the transcendent high priest who is able to bring us, sinners like you and me, all the way to God. Not just into a temple, but into the heavenly temple. Now in Israel, you'll remember, Aaron and later the sons of Levi, they would have served as priests for the people of God. They would have mediated relationship between God and man. So we would have needed a mediator to go for us before God. And these these Israelites, these priests, would make sacrifices daily for sin. And then once... A year, they would make a great sacrifice for the sins of the people on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They would make a sin, they would make a sin offering, and the priest would enter the most holy place behind the veil to make a blood sacrifice where he would sprinkle the blood of this animal on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Exodus 25 describes what this Ark would have looked like. It was an Ark where there would have been two cherubim, that would have had their wings overarching with in between a a throne. And that throne was considered to be the mercy seat where blood would be spread. And that was where it was said that God placed his feet. It was where God met with man. This mercy seat. This mercy seat is where God met with his people in a unique way. But Jesus here is our greater high priest, and that he preceded Aaron and Levi as God's eternal son. He's not merely a man. He is the God-man. Of course, he also offered a greater sacrifice when he obeyed God, even to the point of laying down his life on the cross for you and me. In other words, Jesus is the greater priest who offered the greater sacrifice before God. As Hebrews 10.10 says, Jesus offered a sacrifice Not daily or once a year, but once for all to bring us to God. His sacrifice fully and completely satisfied God and his wrath for sinners. 
In other words, he made those who were enemies of God, children of God, and absorbed the wrath that we deserve. Uh, Hebrews 2.17 already has said as much, where he described Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation is a big word, and sometimes in church I almost feel like I need to apologize for using big words, but it's in the Bible. And it's an important and a beautiful word that I don't want anybody to leave here with, without missing and miss what it means. See, propitiation stands at the blazing center of the gospel. The word describes Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross as being acceptable before God to turn back and even absorb the just wrath of God for sinners. I, I love, um, I love like Marvel and superheroes. I love to go to all the movies with my kids. And there is just something amazing every time you see some powerful uh, superhero absorb like the, the greatest devastating blow of his arch nemesis right before he takes him out. Well, that's just a, a pity, pathetic kind of picture that all of us long to see ultimately in what Christ has done for us in absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve. He did that very thing on the cross for you and me. He propitiated God for us so that we could come before God and be not his enemies, but his friends and even his children. See, Jesus is the great high priest who offered himself as the true acceptable sacrifice that enables sinners and rebels to draw near to a holy and righteous God. See, Jesus is the great high priest who has accomplished this for you and me, his people. His greatness can also be seen here in that verse 14 says, notice this, he passed through the heavens, this Jesus who is the Son of God. See, no one else can claim that they have passed through the heavens going or coming. This is the vision of Jesus traveling through heaven to be with God. He is our transcendent great high priest who descended to help sinful humanity on earth and has ascended to be with the Holy Father in heaven. He came from God to us and then went back to God. And he sits at his right hand ever interceding for his people. In other words, he is great because his priesthood precedes and exceeds that of Aaron as does his access to God. So if these Israelites were thinking, maybe I need to go back to the Levitical priesthood so that we can have what seems or feels like a closer relationship with the Lord, he says, you are actually settling for so much less than what has been given you in Christ. Jesus is the great high priest. He is emphatically declared in these verses to be the very Son of God. And don't miss this point here. As one commentator writes, as we are thinking about the greatness of Jesus Christ in context, with verse 13 in view, with us in sight of God, with all of our sins before, laid bare before him, one commentator writes this about the encouragement of this verse. He says this, The more desperate their situation is before the all-seeing eye of God, the more wonderful is his provision for their needs. The more they sense the weight of their sin, the more they feel powerless before temptation the more beautiful stands this great high priest who forever intercedes for them. More do they realize their need of this high priest. We all need Jesus to go between us and God to bring us to God. This morning you might be here and you might think to yourself, I, 
you know, I don't think of myself as a Christian. And if you're here and you're that, that, that's you, I just want you to know that we are so encouraged to have you. We, we love to have non-Christians come and join us. We love to tell you about the greatness of our God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But do you realize that, that you, this morning, are actually completely exposed before your holy God? You were made for Him. You were made by Him. And yet, you and all of us have sinned against God. That's what the Bible says. All of us have sinned against him and are sinners before him. So even if you don't feel like you've sinned against God, and I'm guessing that you do, you know that you are, because of what the word of God says, a sinner before God. And even our thoughts and desires that tempt us can become sins against God, even if they don't make it to your hands and to the things that they commit. So is all that exists between you this morning and your holy and righteous God your sins? Because if that's the case, then all that awaits those who only have sins to put between them and God, all that you will have is the wrath of God. That's what the Bible says. And if so, God is a just judge and will pour out his wrath on sinners who try to approach him in any other way than the way that he has opened up to you. If Jesus is not your great high priest, you have nothing but your great sins going between you and God. But if you put your faith in Christ today and you turn from living for yourself and living for your sin and living for Christ as King Jesus, God's eternal beloved Son will become your go-between. So that when you do come before the Father, and we all will, it will not be your great sins that are going before you, but Christ himself speaking on your behalf. And he won't be speaking about all of the good things that you think you have done. He'll be speaking of his works of perfect righteousness while here on earth, and even to the point of the cross, that go to your account. See, by faith, Jesus actually takes your sins and exchanges them for his righteousness. God will see you through and in Christ. And the only way that anyone can stand before God at first or in any day between until the day that we come before him in glory is if they are hidden in Jesus Christ, our great high priest who forever lives to intercede for his people. So if you don't know that Christ, don't leave without talking to me or someone else about how you can be clothed with Christ today. But notice also here, that the author of Hebrews urges two things in light of Jesus as our great high priest. Did you notice that? He, he says, Jesus is our great high priest. Now let me tell you two things about the nature of what I want you to do in response to that. First, he says, hold fast to the gospel. And second, pray with confidence. And those are the two things we're going to look at here. See, he seems to believe that both of these things are important for making it into the rest of God making it into the place where God dwells forever. He says these are things that that, that ought to take place until that great day. And they flow from the reality that Jesus Christ is our high priest. So first he says this. He says, hold fast to the gospel to fight temptation. Now because Jesus is our great high priest, the author of Hebrews first says this in verse 14. Notice what he says in the second half of that verse in 15. He says this. He says, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, 
First, notice that we confess the good news of a great high priest. The gospel of a great high priest. This word for confession, it actually began this section in 3.1. So if you were to look at 3.1, you would notice that it says there, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, there seemed to be an early confession that was made by Christians here that centered on the apostleship and high priestly role of Jesus. Now, an apostle, he was, as an apostle, he was uniquely sent from God in heaven to us to disclose to us God's word and bring us back to God. Now, as our great high priest, he came as our great mediator to bring us peace with God. In other words, coming to God without a mediator. And high priest would be a terrifying notion. If you were to try to approach God as a sinner without having someone to be your go-between, it would be a fearsome thing to come into the presence of a holy God. But it would also be impossible to gain access to God without Christ opening a way where there was no way. See, this same word for confession is also used in Hebrews 10.23. So later in this same section... And there you'll notice that after affirming that we can enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus, and that we can draw near with hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water, he then says this in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. Does that sound familiar? It's the same confession language. We need to hold fast to the confession that has been given to us, a confession that centers on Jesus as our great high priest. Now, this could have been a confession that was maybe given at baptism. I'm not sure. It says that they were washed with pure water, that they were sprinkled with blood. But the content of this confession centered on the role of Jesus as our great high priest who made a sacrifice of himself for us on the cross that satisfied the just wrath of God. Of course, his sacrifice for our sins was acceptable because he was perfect and he did not sin. Now, you might ask when you look at that, how can such a a transcendent high priest understand what my life is like? Does that make sense? I mean, if, if Jesus is this great transcendent high priest, how can he relate to me in the temptations that I'm facing day in and day out? How would he be able to understand me so that he could actually mediate for me with God? How does that happen? We'll see a second thing here, and that's this, that our great high priest is sympathetic in verse 15. So not only is he our great high priest, but notice that he is sympathetic. Take note of how verse 15 highlights this. He says this. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, this word for sympathy here combines the idea of of feeling and and with, so that you feel with someone. It's used elsewhere to describe a a kind of feeling that a a mother would have for her children. So this this idea is is such that it's a, a feeling or a love or a compassion that one has for another where they truly care for the person to whom this compassion is being, being shown. Now, George Guthrie says this. He says, this compassion doesn't necessitate sharing a mother's or another's exact experiences. 
It doesn't mean that for me to have this feeling that I need to have experienced every exact thing that you've experienced. But it does go beyond a mere feeling. So it's not just feeling. It actually includes compassion to the point of helping others. So this compassion is not a compassion that's like, I feel so bad for you. That's just too bad. I'll pray for you about that. This is a a sincere, I'm going to pray for you, and I want, if I can help you, to help you, I want to step in and act on your behalf. So here, in other words, Jesus is compassionate and able to help us in our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us. Now, what weaknesses is it that he's talking about that he's sympathizing with? He could have used a specific word, but this seems to be more of a general word. With a wide range, it encompasses everything from being physically weak to, to sick to social pressure, to abuse, even to the general weaknesses of our flesh that often can lead us to sin. And so here it seems that what's being said is is that Jesus sympathizes with us in all of these weaknesses that we feel. Now here's the encouragement. Jesus is compassionate and able to help us no matter what temptation we are struggling with, with no matter what weakness we are feeling. Isn't that good news and encouragement? No matter what it is that you're feeling today, no matter what experience it is that is upon you, no matter what temptation it is that you feel is overwhelming, Jesus not only cares, but he is able to help. I think that's the nature of who Jesus is here. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus actually understands and can have compassion on us? Well, he was tempted in every way in respect as we are, and yet without sin. He knows what it is to sense or to to be under and living amongst sinners. Now, we've seen that Jesus faced unique temptations in the wilderness when he was confronted by Satan himself. Uh, There are some uniquenesses about Jesus' suffering. He faced Satan himself. Uh, We also know that at the cross, he faced the unique temptation to abandon the cross and God's wrath and leave us in our sins. But his temptation in every respect highlights the fullness and trueness of his human experience. That's what's being said. Not that he faced every type of sin that we did, but that he experienced the fullness of what it means to be human for you and me. See, Jesus truly took on flesh and all of the temptations that accompany that. Now, to be sure, Jesus was unique. He was the God-man. In his humanity, Jesus felt the pressures of living in a fallen world. But remember, he is also uniquely the last Adam. Like Adam, Jesus was not able to sin. Every other person after that was not able not to sin, but he was able not to sin. And in another sense, not only was he able not to sin, because he was God's son, he would never sin because his will was to to do the will of the Father at every point. But that doesn't mean that he can't sympathize with us. In fact, there is a real sense in which I think that Jesus truly understands the feeling of the weight of temptation that you and I face day and day even more than, he, than we do. And you might say, well, how is that? Well, by way of example, um, I don't like to watch mixed martial arts. I can't stand it. Um, I don't like watching uh, one man or one woman like repeatedly bash another person's face in. I know that some of you enjoy that. Um, that's between you and Jesus. I just don't like it. Like, it, it makes me sad. Uh, I feel bad for people. 
But I, I was at a restaurant the other day, and I was eating, and um, of course, no better place to watch mixed martial arts than whenever you're eating. And um, I was watching as this guy took on another guy, and it was a really short match. Like within seconds, he had him on the ground, and he pulled his arm back, and it didn't look like that big of a deal, but he like tapped out in a second. Now, I was thinking, man, that was quick. Quitter. I would never say that to his face, but... <clears throat> But that guy was a trained fighter, right? He knew that he had lost and was in danger before anybody else did because he had trained and prepared and knew his opponent better than any of us. And if he had stayed, he probably would have felt the full force of that move and likely have broken an arm to show for it. See, he was no match for his opponent. Now, left to ourselves, the Bible says that we are no match for temptation and sin. We will lose every time. We'll tap out every time and give in to sin. But... We have one who never tapped out when tempted to abandon God's will, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus never tapped out. He took it to the very end, even to the point of death. He never gave up. He never turned on God. He chose God in saving us at the very last moment when it cost him most. So who knows the cost and pain of fighting temptation more than Jesus? See, temptation hit Jesus with everything he had, even to the point of death, and Jesus never tapped out. C.S. Lewis picks up on this. C.S. Lewis, not a great theologian, but he makes a good point about Jesus and temptation and mere Christianity. And he does this in response to this question of whether Jesus really faced every type of sin like Hebrew says here. And he says this, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. In other words, if you're good, you can't understand like, you know, how hard temptation is. Now this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And here's the beauty in that. Jesus knows you and your temptation and the power of it more than you ever will. You're thinking about your temptation and thinking there's no way that I can ever defeat this. And Jesus is like, duh. Why do you think I had to come to the cross? Like you can't do it on your own. You can't do it aside or apart from me. It takes complete and utter dependence upon me. And we need to hold fast to this confession that the pastor of the Hebrew church said that they needed to hold fast to. We need to grip this same gospel. Jesus fully entered into the human experience when he took on flesh and understands the power of temptation better than you or me ever will. Now, here's the good news for those in Christ, though. Because Jesus entered into our weakness, he understands the power of our temptations that we face. He's felt our weakness even more fully than we have. And that's our confession. We have a great Christ, a great high priest who knows us better than we know ourselves. And every one of us have given in to temptation. Jesus never did. But he never, he did this, he did this so that he is able to fully save us because he never sinned. Now we are not alone in our weaknesses. You need to know that brothers and sisters. Our temptation is not as new or unique as we'd like it to make it out to be. It's not as you new or unique as Satan would have us believe. I'm just curious, how many of you have fallen into sin and thought, or maybe even said, you just don't understand? 
Have y'all ever heard that? Like you're trying to help counsel someone and, and they've fallen into some sin and it's like, let me tell you about my unique circumstances that justify this because nobody can understand what I was going through when this thing happened. Now there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that, some uniquenesses that can happen where we need to be humble when we're trying to help others. But the reality and the truth is, is that there is no kind of temptation that Jesus does not understand. He understands it better than we do. The gospel is the good news of a great high priest who understands you and your temptation better than you ever will. Now, step one in fighting temptation here is looking to the God-man Jesus Christ, trusting that he and he alone triumphed over every temptation for you. See, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. God doesn't accept us because we triumphed over temptation. God loves us because Jesus did. But catch this. Hebrews says God's people will fight temptation and sin until death or Jesus comes back. So Jesus defeated temptation and sin. He overcame it. But we are called to do so as well. And that means, that's what it means to be a Christian. We don't take sin's side against God. We take God's side against sin and temptation. Now, to do that, we not only need to take a white-knuckled grip on the gospel, he says, second, we need also to pray with confidence. We need to pray with confidence. In verse 16, he closes by saying, pray constantly and confidently that God can and will help you when you are weak. Now, we began with God's all-seeing eyes, looking on every person, seeing to their very hearts in the context of judgment. That's not the the stuff that confidence is built of, is it? Like God sees us bare before him. That's the kind of thing that people tend to run from. But notice how things have changed here in this invitation. The second thing that we are called to do in response to Jesus as our great high priest arises in verse 16, which says this. Look what he says. He says, let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As you'll remember in the Old Testament, worshipers could only approach the outer, the outer limits of the sanctuary. Ordinary uh, priests could come and approach the altar, but only the high priest could approach the mercy seat. As one commentator wrote, or writes, he says, Christ's high priestly ministry has achieved for believers, that's you and me in Christ, what Israel never enjoyed. Namely, immediate access to God and freedom to draw near to Him continually. Did did you catch that? As those in Christ, we have a unique opportunity that is much greater than that that Israel experienced. That is that we have full access to God immediately and that we are able to draw near to Him continually. In fact, this speaks not only of the earthly throne that we are drawing near to, but the heavenly one where Christ is mediating relationship for us. So we have greater access, and not just greater access, but we have greater access to a greater throne, the one to which the earthly throne pointed. See, that throne is characterized here, notice, by grace. By grace. God's blessings pour out to God's people from his throne. It is a a gracious throne that floods out to us. How can sinners find grace at God's throne, though? Well, it's because of the good news of the great high priest. It is because he has brought us near to God, that we can draw near to him, that we can see this throne not as a throne of judgment, but of grace to us. 
See, if we hold a tight grip on the, the gospel, it will lead to constant and competent prayers. Did you hear that? If we really are holding on tightly to the gospel, it will lead to a lifestyle of constant and competent prayers. If we are not praying constant and competently, it is probably because in some way we have loosened our grip on the truth of the gospel for us and who we are because of what Christ has done as our great high priest. Did you catch that? He tells us with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Cowards who hide under the all-seeing gaze of God, like Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves with leaves, become confident when they are clothed with Christ. See, our cowering turns to confidence if we truly know Christ as that great high priest for us. And our prayer life will change. Hebrews 12.22 says, We have definitively drawn near to God in Christ if we are believers. We have drawn near to Him. That is something that has happened in a moment that is definitively changed. We can go ahead and change our Facebook status to in a relationship. But those who have drawn near to God also continue to draw near to God in Hebrews 4. Do you see it? As we face temptation, this pastor tells his church, don't miss the unique provision that we have in Christ to help us make it to the end. We have access to the throne of grace. How many of us are not taking advantage, full advantage of the throne of grace that has been opened to us because of what Christ has done? How many of us have not because we ask not? Why do we continually draw near to it, this throne of grace? What's the purpose of this? Well, he says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would anybody be happy to have mercy and grace in time of need this morning? Not many. Let me ask again, would any of you here be happy to receive more mercy and find grace and help of need this morning? We're getting better. Maybe y'all just didn't know what y'all needed to want this morning. Mercy and grace are good things, especially when coming from God. See, mercy uh, here, a word, it could be speaking of the confidence that God has forgiven our past sins as we come before Him. And, and maybe grace is speaking to the strength to face future temptations and sins in His grace. But what is clear is that this pastor says that we should pray for God's help in the fight against temptation and sin and that it will arrive in the time of need. Now, did you know that God is never late? Never tardy. My kids are usually late like four times a week to school. God's never, he's never late. His timing is always perfect. Now, sometimes it can feel as though God is late, can it? It can feel like God has not met our timing or this thing has happened in a timing that cannot be God's. But we have a sovereign God who is sovereign over all things and his timing is always perfect and it is definitely always perfect for his people because he loves them. He sympathizes with them. Now, I know that it can feel like God is late, though. Maybe you're feeling this way this morning. He, he should have provided you with a spouse by now. And so you're, you're looking in places that you shouldn't for a spouse or have become addicted to pornography because you are hungry and God is late. Or, or, or maybe you're thinking he should have healed you of your sickness by now and enough is enough. You, you've given up on prayer and you don't believe that God hears you because it's taking too long and it feels like God is 
late. He, he should have fixed your broken relationship with your spouse or your children. And it, and it feels like too much to bear. You wonder if there's any more grace left in that throne that he sits upon. And time's up for confidence in God. And he should have fixed my debt problem for me and, and now I'm in trouble and it's affecting my relationship with my wife and I'm always anxious and angry and I'm weak and vulnerable to sin. Doesn't God care? Why is God late? Here's the promise that comes from Jesus Christ as our great high priest. He is always for you. His throne is full of grace and it is never late. And he knows what you need better than you know. And so he's calling you to trust that, that God is who he says he is, that he is the one who will bring you to himself and you need to trust and wait and pray until that day when either you die or Jesus comes back for you. See, we all have our areas of weakness, places we feel vulnerable to temptation and sin, And we need to be reminded, just like this church did, that we often think that God is late because we've forgotten that he is our great high priest who is ever interceding for us. The very breath that we are using to complain about his tardiness, he is speaking to God about grace for us and that sin. See, our prayers grow less confident when we grow less confident in Jesus Christ. And as our great mediator who sympathizes with our infirmities even more than a loving mother does with her children. And that we forget that he is never late in pouring out mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. How slow we are to remember how God has poured out mercy and grace for us. And how quick we are to see how late God is. It is always the opposite. Everything that we have is because of the grace of God and his mercy. We need to seek his face and trust that he always provides in the ways that we need. See, we need to only remember that God knows what we need better than we do because Jesus understands our temptations even better than we can. Let's pray.